Spring is here, and as of April 1st, the CFB Winning Edge 2022 FBS team profiles are available for all of our Tier 2 Patreon supporters. Our FBS team profiles include 131 team pages, each with 85 or more individual player ratings, position and unit rankings, depth charts, transfer updates, injury reports, full season and single game projections, and much, much more. Visit patreon.com slash Edge to join as a Tier 2 member to access our roster strength ratings, head coach rankings, on-field team performance, and recruiting strength history for all 131 FBS programs. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping to fund our 2022 FBS team profiles and other projects coming soon. Welcome back, everybody. It's CFB Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogdan. Follow me on the Twitter, at Bogdan Sports. I'm joined, as always, by Nicholas Ian Allen, the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge. Follow him on the Twitter, at CFB Winning Edge. And brand new college graduate, Xavier Trish, at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E, on the Twitter machine. Xavier, congratulations. Big ups. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you. Congrats. Thank you. You're gonna go get all the jobs now, right? Every job. So yeah, I, I got to because Sally Mae's on my back. <laughs> I, I, I crossed that crossed that stage, and she was like, "Hey, hey so when you pay these off, so like, yeah, yeah absolutely." Here's your my piece of paper. paper. Now, where's our paper? Give exactly. us our paper. <laughs> yeah, that, that we need it. Uh, give it back. So, uh, big big ups, congratulations to Xavier. Uh, awesome, awesome job on graduating. And uh, today we have a good show for you. We're going to talk about, of course, a uh, couple news and notes, the transfer portal, and then uh, talk about the position groups that could keep a team out of uh, the playoff, uh, uh, you know, uh, making a bowl, uh, winning a, a division, anything like that uh, for the defensive side of the ball, like we did the offensive side of the ball. Last time we took a week off here. Because Nick is on the move again, he has entered the transfer portal. He will be uh, moving on had to, to had to uh, take Ver- an official visit. Yeah, uh, he, he last top, week. Yeah, uh, a yeah. top thirty visit with Vermont. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I you, appreciate everyone's be- patience. Uh, it is not easy uh, to get from Oregon to Vermont, and so it took a little time and had Oregon. to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> had to had to navigate a, a bit of a crazy. Uh, housing market, but everything seems to be uh, pretty close to settled. So yes, I, I uh, had to had to uh, check some things out, get out of town for a little bit. But appreciate everybody's patience for uh, waiting a week for uh, this next episode. That's right. So let's dive in here and talk about some college football. The first thing is that the NCAA Division One Council. Uh, relaxes restrictions for FBS conference championship games. So, uh, Nick, if you want to put that into English for me, uh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> I'm assuming just every conference can have a championship game now. They don't have to meet the wacky rules or whatever. So the basically it, it could spell the end of division play. Um, conferences no longer have to have you know your East champ versus your West champ or North versus South or, or whatever it is. Uh, and basically seemed like minutes after 
this announcement was made, the Pac-12 had uh, a statement saying that they would award the top two teams in terms of conference winning percentage in the 2022 title game. So this will have at least one conference, and I would expect um, the ACC, I know, has been in favor of doing away with their divisions uh, for quite a while. So it sounds like they might be the next to follow. We might get more, but uh, yeah, basically now um, using the PAC 12 as an example, it won't have to be, you know, Oregon versus Utah or, um, you know, whoever else (laughs) might win the North Washington versus uh, USC or, or, you know, it doesn't have to be that anymore. It could be, two South teams, two North teams, but the the top two in uh, conference winning percentage. And then it sounds like we'll probably have some more uh, conferences follow suit pretty quickly. And I know there've been, you know, talks for a while now, but it's really been heating up in the last couple of weeks about, um, you know, different conferences moving to more of a pod system where you've got, you know, three uh, permanent rivals and then just kind of rotate through the rest of the group. So, uh, you know, I know, in the SEC, Georgia played te- has played Texas A&M once, right, in conference right. play. Uh, or, you know, we have some teams that don't play others uh, for periods of six, seven years. So um, this, I, th- I think, is a, a good thing. You know, me personally, um, these conferences have just kind of grown too big to where the divisions, you know, kind of create a little bit of a barrier when you have to play the six other teams in your division and it only leaves so many uh, conference games left for the other side. So hopefully we'll get to see, you know, some of these matchups a little more often. And do you, um, do you think that this helps or hurts the idea of like super conferences where, you know, we're going to get down to five or six conferences and that's going to be just what we have moving forward. I know there's been a lot of speculation of that. And I've seen the sec. I've seen the pod talk, which I always thought was about some type of coffee. But uh, the, the the pod talk where it would be Texas, Texas A&M, Oklahoma, and Arkansas in the same like pod in the SEC, and I mm-hmm. would love that. That would be great. Of course you would. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it if it makes it necessarily easier for for the conferences, you know, to continue to grow. Um, it's almost to the point where with some of these you know, conferences are twice as big as they used to be uh, where it, it was almost like the division was, you know, a conference onto itself uh, in some cases, since there were some teams that just hardly ever played one another. Um, but I don't know. That's, that's a good question, but it does. I think it helps overall. Uh, you know, it might help boost a resume for a playoff team because you won't have a, you know, team kind of luck its way into the conference championship game with a seven and five record or, or what have you, um, because it's going to be the best two teams no matter what. So uh, that could potentially give, you know, a team like, um, you know, for years we've seen uh, teams in the SEC West be the runner up in the division and still, you know, kind of uh, be in line or be part of the playoff discussion uh, where they don't have to play in that conference championship game. So in some ways, you know, teams won't get that sort of easy out or, or sort of, you know, uh, uh, kind of the, the lighter load where they don't have to play that extra game. If you are one of the top two teams, 
you'll you'll be in the mix no matter what. Have to be you know be forced to play that game so you won't kind of sneak in to a playoff uh, at least in the four team setup uh, like that. But on the other hand, you know you're not going to get kind of a fluky champion a six and six or seven and five team that uh, somehow found its way into the conference championship game through a tiebreaker of some sort and either knock off a, you know, team that otherwise would have been really deserving uh, or just water down that team's, uh, you know, strength of schedule or resume or, or what have you. So I think overall it's a, you know, for me personally, it, it seems like a, a smart move. Xavier, your thoughts on uh, this move that we're getting from the NCAA? Immediately as as Nick began to like kind of describe what this would mean as far as for conferences, I thought of the Big Ten and I was like, oh, okay, so we'll get like Michigan-Ohio State rematch after Michigan-Ohio State. Okay, (laughs) cool. Like that's definitely going to be a thing. You're not going to get like Ohio State 13-0, Nebraska 9-3. And it's like (laughs) understood. You know, um, that, that was the first conference I thought of off the top of my head because I feel like that conference more than many, maybe anybody else seems to always have like lopsided, near, yeah, nearly undefeated team versus like nine and three, eight and four, even in a, in a 10 and two case. But like in like a clear 10 and two, like they lost to Ohio State earlier in the year. They lost to Michigan earlier in the year and they're just there to get drug again. Um, and so like, yeah. Um, that's the first conference that I, I thought of immediately uh, that would benefit from something like this because I think we would all like to see maybe, you know, Penn State versus Ohio State again. You know, maybe the game was you know fairly close in the middle of the season, but now Penn State doesn't make the, the, the Big Ten championship game because of that loss, but probably deservedly decides to be there. Um, and instead we get in Iowa, you know, no slouch to Iowa, just, you know, just we get in Iowa. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that was the first thing that came to mind. Secondarily was, you know, now I don't have to, convince myself that georgia tech is a coastal city you know see <laughs> coastal yet georgia's for the most part landlocked so and they're in the middle of it, downtown atlanta that's neither here nor there uh but just you know just a i mean i'll just remind you that the astros are in division with like the angels mariners you know i mean the rangers are in there too but uh it, it's very they're in the al west and yeah. it takes you know five or six hours to fly to california uh, yeah so, exactly you know. <laughs> you know so that was the other piece too is just you know now I, I do feel that our conference championships will be for the most part wholly justified um you know I can hear it already in my head. Alabama and Auburn fans arguing about who actually deserves to be in the conference championship game more because those two teams seemingly every year going into the Iron Bowl can control whether or not the other one gets to the conference championship. It's always like if Auburn beats Alabama and all of these disastrous things happen on top of it, Alabama will be out of the conference championship game and we'll get Mississippi State. And I'm like, all right, Auburn, do your job. Here we go. Let's let's knock off the you know let's not knock off the crimson tide and let's make this a chaotic situation, uh, and I feel like you know Alabama won't get that situation where you know I think maybe two times in the last five years they've made the playoff as not even appearing in the conference title game, um, so that would be obviously no longer an argument for especially people who don't really like the SEC getting two teams in. You'd have that situation happen seemingly a lot less because of the fact yeah. that you no longer have you know. These scenarios where Auburn gets in, you know, as a nine and three team, and, and Alabama sitting there at twelve and one, uh, 
you know, or 11 and one, excuse me, and doesn't have to do that and just kind of sits there and watches college football in like, in like a golden throne, understanding that, hey, everybody just has to lose in front of us and we'll slide right in there at four because our resume right. is better than everybody else's in the country, except for the fact that we just happened to lose to an Alabama team or an Auburn team who, in the, who at the beginning of the year lost to Louisiana. So, yeah, I, I I got what you're saying. There's other uh, things involved here as well, as far as rulings. The uh, council has also removed the 25 player limit on signing classes for the next two years. The only limit is 85 scholarship players. That is interesting. That feels and, like a COVID response. It, and, feels- yes, and, and it's not official yet, but uh, there have also been steps taken to implement a transfer window, which I know uh, I feel like just logistically, Nick. You have to be on board with that. Is this you? Are you leading the charge of the yeah, transfer right. window? Did you sign a petition? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I I have I think mixed feelings on both of these. Like the the twenty five player limit, being able to oversign is is what's different here. Um, I think in a lot of ways is good because it allows a you know a team that that finds itself or a, you know, a new head coach taking over a roster that's just been decimated by uh, whether it's graduation transfers, what, what have you. Uh, sometimes you're put in a situation or a program is put in a situation where a new coaching staff has to come in and, and fix a problem that wasn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't their fault. And it's going to make it a really, really difficult situation. So to be able to sign 30 players or more uh, to help, you know, build that number of scholarship players up um, is good. I mean, you know, part of the reason that Kansas has fallen off so much over the last decade was, uh, you know, the the time when uh, Charlie Weiss was there, was so reliant on junior college players. And it just sort of really threw off some of the scholarship numbers and it made it very, very difficult um, for, you know, the, the coaching staffs that followed to actually just get back up to that 85 scholarships. And so there was uh, an even bigger talent gap in part because the numbers weren't quite there. So if if they were able to oversign and, and get back up to that number a lot quicker, perhaps Kansas, as an example, wouldn't have fallen so far. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes you get a new coach and they just want to completely remake the roster in the, you know, in the, in the, to fit the type of players that their system, you know, who would perform better in their system. And that could lead to a situation where um, some players end up getting a raw deal because, you know, their scholarship gets pulled or, or what have you. And then the coach can just go out and sign 40 players to just completely uh, revamp the roster. And, and so, you know, there, there are some situations where I feel like this could be bad for players. Um, but I think on the whole, you know, being able to, to go a few over that 25 limit, especially when you're in a scholarship hole, um, is going to be going to be helpful and hopefully avoid some of these programs just becoming, you know, among the worst of the worst, just because they get in a bad situation, uh, with numbers. So, it's probably not going to, you know, reduce the number of transfers. In, in fact, you know, it could certainly in the, in the scenario I mentioned where maybe a coaching staff decides they're going to get rid of more players than they normally would, um, could end up 
creating even more transfers. Uh, and then the transfer windows, you know, makes a certain amount of sense. Transfer window as a term is a soccer term, right? You get a period of time in the summer and a period of time in the winter where that's the only time uh, players can move from one team to another. And that kind of makes a little bit of sense. And, and, you know, for me personally, as you were alluding to, it would kind of help, <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't have to Rains worry, worry about it quite yeah. as much during certain periods of, of the year. Well, I mean, I was writing uh, stuff for the black book and I always put in uh, players to watch for next year. And I had to put mm-hmm. in a question mark under Jordan Addison because I have no oh, idea sure. where he's going to be, you yeah, know, absolutely. hopefully Texas, but we'll see, you know, sounds like it's down um, to Texas or USC, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's on the one hand, it would be kind of nice because you can just not have to worry about it all year. But then on the other hand, you know, I'm not necessarily for me personally limiting players options so uh you know if if a guy wants to leave then uh, you know and move to a new program i don't necessarily like the uh you can only do it do it during this you know four week window or or however long the windows end up being uh but i don't know i mean it's it probably makes sense to to rein in some of the um movement just so we can you know, uh, I don't know, just, just so that's not, you know, constant all the time. Right. Um, but with both of these, I can see different scenarios where players end up, you know, being put in a situation where, uh, they're at a disadvantage for whatever reason, um, because of these new rules. And, and I really don't want to put players at a disadvantage, but, uh, there's, there's, you know, positives and negatives, I guess, with all of these, but, um, they're they're they do seem to be i think a small step in the right direction most of them xavier your thoughts on uh the ncaa and and these rules the the transfer window and the uh 25 uh player limit in the signing classes yeah uh for for the 25 player limit it's a covert response like for so for the last two years you've pretty much allowed guys to stay a part of teams longer than you know most college kids would um obviously we saw what that what that led to in this year's draft we had probably the deep, deepest draft of all time uh but what also that did is that that made i won't say it made it harder to recruit but it made it less necessary for a lot of these teams to do so and i think that now with this over the next two years you've kind of got to make up for it now to an extent by extending the amount of kids that you can sign for the next two seasons you might create an over you know it, it might be oversimplifying it a little bit too much because once again you might then create another issue with over signing the next two years and then kind of then getting back to your 25 player limit the, the very next season uh, but you need to go ahead and do that because a lot of kids in high school i feel like were were turned away from from especially bigger schools because of the fact that they you know were keeping these you know five six year seniors that were allow you know that were allowing them essentially to say no high school kids for 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 a variety of reasons um, and it made it harder for them to get into schools. A lot of them had to go to the G5 level. A lot of a ton of them had to go to the, through the JUCO level, uh, which, you know, we'll, we'll see how how that, you know, how kids react to that and how schools react to that over the next couple of years as they're able to sign more. I don't think this is going to be a certain situation where like, yeah, now Nick Saban's going to have, a, you know, the number one class of 40 kids. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, it, it does give a lot of these middle schools to like, bottom tier division ones and even like some of like i said so uh schools to give 
more scholarship opportunities to kids that otherwise would not have gotten them uh, to, to really fill their coffins again, because not only with, you know, the, the amount of years that they were allowed to stay in college, is it going to leave a void? But a lot of the teams that we're talking about, maybe like in Louisiana perspective, has really been hit hard by the transfer portal. And so now you may need to just bring in more kids because now it's open season for your, you know, for your top players. You may need to bring in depth that you didn't otherwise have before uh, the transfer portal. What, what was kind of this, you know, this open season kind of situation um, as far as putting in a um, as far as putting in a uh, scheduling or a cutoff period for uh, transferring, I love it. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, like, hey, at the end, it makes the things easier. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I think it also makes things easier for, easier for the kids at the end of the day. Like one of the biggest things that, you know, kind of cr you kind of snuck up on everybody was the deadline being May 1st. It kind of just snuck up on everybody. It was like, oh, yeah, by the way, you better put your name in the transfer portal this week or you, or you can't, you know. And, and I think that now for kids. They will be able, they'll have an understanding of when they can, when they can't. It gives a you know a, a you know a decided upon scheduling when they can uh, put their name in the transfer portal, and it allows teams to be prepared for that situation, right? It, it's not like this, you know, from December to May. Just anybody who wants to go ahead, you know. I I genuinely think they'll do something where it's it gets closed off around March, around early where, where we have the actual signing day period. And I think that that's when they'll close it off, to be perfectly honest with you. They may give April as a date because they may want kids to have the opportunity to go through spring practice uh, first. But I think we need like a set schedule for this for this uh, for the transfer period, because I just think that otherwise it is to an extent, like I said, open season and kids are just like throwing their names in the hat whenever and for and for whatever. So I think getting a little bit more you know, structure around it is where ultimately the, the NCAA has to get to in general. Um, I think this is a good step in the right direction. That's not too overbearing, which I'm surprised I'm saying that about the NCAA, but it's not too overbearing um, and kind of still gives the kids the allows the kids to do what they want to just understanding the schedule in which they can. And speaking of windows and uh, things moving around here, the re uh, returning production database, Nick, uh, you, you've uh, I don't want to say you're done because like Santa Claus, I know you make your list and then you check it twice. Uh, but is it is it sewn up? Are we done? Is it ready? It has it has been published. It is available to our uh, tier two and up Patreon supporters. Uh, again, thank you for the patience on that. It, it took geez twice as long as I thought it would um, to get it to that point where I was able to, to share it with everybody, which unfortunately has been a little bit of a, a theme this year. Things for whatever reason have just taken longer. Um, but I, you know, I think it's pretty good. It's, it's, uh, as you mentioned, double checking, triple checking. Um, there's one little piece of data that still needs to be put in for most teams. Uh, the offensive line games played and games start. We, we keep track of career games played and game starts for every position. Those are in the team profiles, but have a specific offensive line, uh, section and do have all the snap counts and like what positions everybody uh, played, how many snaps and all that. Um, but just haven't gone through. I wasn't, wasn't smart and didn't plan ahead well enough uh, to do that while I was updating the team profile. So now I'm having to do some double work, but uh, anyway, so that's the only piece of information. There's uh, what, 20 different categories that we keep, you know, specific percentages for, you know, pass attempts for every 
uh, team, receptions, targets, offensive line snaps, total tackles, pressures, interceptions, havoc plays, all, all that good stuff. Uh, we have a, a full uh, page for where every FBS team, we've got the overall returning production percentage, the offensive returning production percentage, the defensive returning production percentage, and the rankings for all of those, plus then those 20 categories so you can see it all in one place. But then, of course, we've got 131 different team sheets where it's all broken down. Uh, the calculation itself should work out very, very similarly. The, the uh, equation that we use is almost exactly the same as the one Bill Connolly uses. So that's kind of the you know industry standard. Everybody waits for Bill Connolly to put out his list first, and then he updates it a, a, few, a few times uh, throughout the offseason and, and preseason. Uh, the beauty, I think, of ours is you what, get What do you mean see... the offseason and preseason? Right. Well, you're right. The, so the, the early, early, way too early he updates, preseason. He updates it twice during the preseason. The early right? pre yeah. yeah, you're right. You're right. You got <laughs> uh, but I think the, the beauty of ours is you get to see every player. So, you know, Bill does a, a, an incredible job in a many different areas and returning production is certainly one of those. Um, but you just kind of get a you know list that shows okay bowling green is number one in returning production here's the overall percentage here's the offensive percentage here's the defensive percentage and that might be enough for most people and and you know i would understand if it is but uh you know for us you get a chance to see okay uh bowling green is number one in returning production because they return 100 percent of their pass attempts 100 percent of their Past yards, 100% of their rushing attempts, 100% of their rushing yards, 100% of their targets, 82.8% of their offensive line snaps, and then you know goes on and on in, in all the different categories. And then you can actually click on the team page and see, oh, okay, I'm looking here through the you know defensive players, and they lost their third leading tackler. It's everything's color coded in the same way it is in the team profiles. Lost their third leading tackler to transfer. Lost their sixth leading tackler because he's out of eligibility. And then we've also added um, transfers. So incoming transfers are part of it. it the, the last few years, um, the way we did the, the returning production database was only, you know, players leaving. And so, you know, I, I treated it as uh, even if a, a team is bringing in a transfer quarterback, if they lost their starter, they're going to be pretty low in that returning production. But it, you know, it makes sense that um, a, a player that gets a you know starter from another team or, or uh, a high level recruit production who just returning more time. just from a different team. I understand exactly, and and so I did sort of come to a little bit of a, a um, uh, kind of a little bit of a, a, a middle ground because I didn't want to completely say that, that doesn't okay, sound like you, right. <laughs> Didn't want to completely say that if a team lost its starting quarterback but replaced it with a, a starter from another team, I didn't want to necessarily say that that production was able to be completely uh, wiped away and that, that that team would return its full returning production or you know however it calculated out to. I wanted to show that there still was some transition because I think there is a, a little bit of a value to that. So what I did was include all of last year's 
stats. And if a uh, incoming transfer comes in, throw that into the mix as well, and then take the returning production percentage based on the sum of those. If if that makes sense. Anyway, our you know folks who are are uh, Patreon supporters and have access to it, it probably makes sense when you're looking at it. Um, but the the hope was, the thought was that that would give us a a little bit better picture, not just guys who are leaving from last year and not just, you know, if they brought somebody in who had stats equal to or above, it wouldn't completely, you know, give them a hundred percent returning production. I wanted to, to show that there was some turnover, but you know, not everything is gone. If that makes sense. Anyway, I'm getting long winded uh, <laughs> as usual. Yeah. But, but you're describing your process, which I always appreciate, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and so it, you know, the numbers might look a little weird if you've, if you're, a Patreon supporter, and and you don't quite understand why. Maybe it looks like there's too much in the you know passing yardage column uh, or whatnot. If it's because that player is highlighted in blue, they're an incoming transfer. That's because I, I you know, tried to to incorporate their production uh, into the mix as well. But yes, it's it's uh, it's out there. There's as always, like the team profiles, like anything else we do. It's still fluid. There's still, you know, uh, if you notice something that's incorrect, let me know. I've had uh, a Patreon supporter uh, let me know that that I didn't, you know, properly uh, take out Colorado's total offensive numbers because, you know, going through 131 teams and 20 different categories. You miss one. Sometimes, yeah. yeah, sometimes you miss one and, and didn't catch it uh, quick enough. So anybody see something like that, please let me know. Want to get that fixed as quickly as possible. Uh, but this is one of, uh, you know, I think our team profiles are pretty good. Uh, but I think our returning production, I, I I think it's one of the better things we do. And it's it's very, very difficult uh, process-wise. This year I was frustrated because it took so much longer than I expected it to. Um, but I think, I think there's some value to being able to, you know, pull up Arizona and see in – uh, black and white, and then also, you know, the other colors that we use to signify different things. Oh, okay. So these guys are gone, uh, but this transfer is coming in. That's offsetting it a little bit. And and sometimes you can just look at, um, you know, sometimes it, it hits you in the face like, oh, wow, there's so much gone this year. You know, a team like Hawaii or a team like Nevada, who's had so much turnover compared to years past. And you can see how much of it is uh, guys leaving for the NFL draft early, how much of it is guys out of eligibility, how much of it is, is, you know, players transferring out. Um, I think there's some value to that and, and to be actually, actually able to see, you know, passing, rushing, receiving tackles, tackles for loss, sacks, intercept, all that good stuff. Um, so hopefully, you know, People find it useful. Uh, and it, if somebody has you know interest in um, access to it, yeah, please uh, check us out patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge and join as a tier two Patreon supporter, and uh, we'll get to that access right away. So I see, I see one mistake. Bijan is not one hundred and ten on your VGR number. So uh, <laughs> that, that is one mistake that needs to get corrected there, Nick. Because of course we're just using the eyeball test on him. He is uh, at least a 110 here, uh, even though 100 is the absolute <laughs> highest that we go. Uh, let's talk about the transfer portal because two weeks. So uh, because there's no window, lots of stuff 
still happening. So uh, let's go over it. Uh, uh, JMU linebacker Diamant uh, Tucker Dorsey entered the transfer portal Wednesday. Florida State, Texas, and Ole Miss uh, were among the first to offer. He was an FCS All-American in 2021 and entered 2022 as the most productive JMU defender by a large window here. So uh, potential for a couple teams to pick up a linebacker here. East Carolina picked up a pair of potential impact defensive transfers in Georgia Southern linebacker Mike Edwards and Buffalo cornerback uh, pre-Washington, uh, both starters at their previous schools. UCF wide receiver Jalen Robinson has committed to Ole Miss where he has a chance to make a major impact. Uh, he signed with uh, Oklahoma, was also pursued by Miami and Tennessee, among others. So big, big get for Ole Miss. Another former Georgia Southern starting linebacker has announced his transfer. Uh, Eldrin, uh, Eldrick Robinson is headed to Wake Forest. Former UAB uh, defender Chris Mall initially announced his intention to transfer to UCF, but instead is going to play for Washington. Knights added former Maryland linebacker Brandon Jennings, who uh, recently decommitted from Kansas State. Maryland added a pair of potential impact defensive linemen with the commitments of Quashon Fuller from Florida State and Henry uh, Chibazi uh, uh, from Liberty. Uh, that one tripped me up for sure. Uh, Toledo wide receiver Matt Landers, a former Georgia signee, is back in the SEC after transferring to Arkansas. This was an interesting one. Uh, former Baylor quarterback Jerry Bohannon uh, landed at USF, South Florida, so he will be there. North Texas added uh, another intriguing quarterback in Grant Gunnell, a former starter at Arizona. Uh, he sat out 2021 at Memphis with an injury, but he's now going to North Texas. USC continues to be active. They have landed former Wyoming defensive lineman Solomon Bird and Washington defensive back Jacob Covington. Purdue could be a transfer destination for wide receivers following the news that um, protected wide receiver one Milton Wright is academically ineligible. Wright did not play in the Boilermakers bowl game due to academics. And by the time you listen, you may know where Jordan Addison is heading, like uh, Nick mentioned before. Seems to be USC or Texas. Fingers crossed, you know, big money, no whammies, all that good stuff. So let's go, Jordan Addison. Let's let's build this Texas receiving core. I mean, can you imagine Nayor, Worthy, and um, and Addison would be uh, insane. How can anyone, doesn't matter who you put back there, uh, they should be able to succeed with that group. But, uh, Nick, obviously, you wrote, you wrote out all of these uh, transfers in the transfer <laughs> portal and have entered them into all the depth charts. So, what are the ones that stand out to you uh, over this two-week stretch here? So the the Tucker Dorsey, the Devante Tucker Dorsey uh, news happened this morning, Wednesday as we're recording. And that one is going to be interesting because it's already kind of tricky for us to properly rate James Madison. The way we do the individual player ratings are based on – you know, I've gone through this a hundred times, I'm sure. But you know, the first ingredient is that 247 sports recruiting rating. And then we adjust for experience and we adjust for production. And so players like Tucker Dorsey were able to elevate their player ratings to a you know really solid level. He was an all-American linebacker uh, last year, as you mentioned. And so he's you know in the mid-80s right now, based on uh, being a, a pretty low uh, rated recruit coming out of high school, signed with an FCS program that makes a certain amount of sense but he was highly productive so was able to uh turn himself you know into a, a decently rated player the way we calculate things but we're one you know still probably underrating him uh because already he's 
you know, had offers from some pretty big name programs. Um, and then, you know, what is left, James Madison's been a highly, highly successful, one of the top FCS programs in the country. But the way we calculate things, there's a lot of guys with that minimum or default you know, 247 rating because they weren't rated coming out of high school. And so there are guys in our player rating calculations who are in the 60s, who, you know, in the in the low 70s, who are going to be impact players, uh, contributors, if not starters, for James Madison. So losing a player uh, as productive as Tucker Dorsey at a position where, for James Madison, the linebacker position is already – thin. I mean, they don't return. He was the only returning starter at linebacker. They only start two linebackers. So that's you know a, a part of that, but they only have one other player in our linebacker depth charts right now who played over a hundred snaps last year. And, and that player played 105. And so they've got two starters at that position in the low to mid sixties. And so obviously James Madison ranks at, you know, dead last 131st in our linebacker position strength ratings. Do I think James Madison probably has the worst linebacker group in the country? Probably not. I mean, you know, maybe uh, it certainly could work out. It is a very inexperienced group, but I would, I would take the field of 130 teams, you know, to where if we actually, uh, once we play out the, the 2021 season, James Madison has been such a good program, developmental program. Um, uh, you know, I would expect that they're a little bit better than our ratings would indicate. So it's interesting to me, one, that Tucker Dorsey is a, a you know highly productive player, going to end up probably at a Power 5 school and make an impact there. But also, you know, he was helping to prop up, uh, slightly at least, a team in James Madison that already I think we're having a little bit of, of trouble properly rating them. They're 99th in our power rankings right now. I think they probably should be in the top half of the country. Uh, you know, they're, they went 12 and two last year. They're a fixture in the FCS playoffs. They've given FBS teams headaches when they've had an opportunity to play them in years past and beaten, you know, several in the last decade, at least a couple, I believe. Um, so anyway, it got me, this piece of news got me thinking, two or three steps down the line as often happens. Mm -hmm. uh, but Jalen Robinson, big get. I mean, he's he's been productive. Uh, had a huge year a couple years ago at UCF, was banged up last year. Ole Miss, you know, lost a lot of production. Talking about teams in, in our returning production uh, database, Ole Miss ranks 111th overall, dead last in the SEC. And, you know, just looking at, at the number of targets, they lost 75% of their targets last year. Their top three receivers in terms of targets are gone uh so they needed there's an opportunity there for jalen robinson to to be the top whiteout in 2021 uh, they brought in a couple of other transfers as well and malik keith and, and jordan watkins and then jonathan mingo uh does return after a, a, an injury uh you know shortened season last year but jalen robinson i think has a, a you know the potential to make a splash in the sec for a team that hopes to compete in the sec west assuming the sec west is going to be a thing uh this year so that's a big one and then a couple of the you know the the uh g5 defenders are 
certainly going to go under the radar, but East Carolina was a bowl team last year. They were a team that I think still has the the potential to uh, improve and make some noise in the AAC and to land two guys who were, you know, experienced starters at, at you know Georgia Southern and, and Buffalo, I think that's really, really helpful. Um, so that could perhaps, you know, perhaps help East Carolina get over um, or, or take that next step into they finally broke through and, and were bowl eligible. Now can they actually, you know, challenge in an AAC that has had, you know, plenty of turnover at, at uh, Cincinnati, UCF is is uh, certainly always. Uh, we mentioned them a couple of times. Guys going in and out of, of UCF, so you know there might be some room for a team like East Carolina to to make a push toward the top, if not make a run at the conference championship, but but you know take that next step. And guys that they're able to get out of the transfer portal, like Mike Edwards and Pre Washington, uh, could help get them there. Matt Landers is an intriguing one. Uh, he dropped down, you know, from Georgia to uh, G five. Didn't start right away. I think he might have been banged up at the early part of last year, um, but came on late and decided, hey, I want to you know jump back up. Arkansas is somewhat similar to Ole Miss where they're looking in the transfer portal, have already to try to replace some guys at the top end of that production from 2021 who are no longer there. He'll have an opportunity. Uh, and then, you know, we've talked before about how the, the quarterback transfer portal seems to be slowing down a bit, but we have two potential uh, 2022 starters uh, find new spots in Bohannon and, and Gunnell. So there's still, still good players to be had, good players entering, you know, even today. Um, will Tucker Dorsey be able to, you know, that, that deadline that we talked about in the last episode and, and a couple that's passed. So is he going to be eligible? Is he going to get a waiver? You know, I guess that's something to watch. Um, but there's still plenty of high quality players in the portal, uh, that will have an impact on, on 2021. And, and, uh, we're still, you know, still seeing some guys who are going to be, uh, impact players for a new team in, in 2022. Um, so even though it's, you know, mid-May now hasn't stopped. It never stops. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll get that window for you for for uh doing all of this stuff but xavier uh guys moving and shaking so what do you think about the moves that we saw over the last couple of weeks here yeah i mean i i'm i love that uh tucker dorsey's not going to be in the sun belt this year or you know <laughs> in the future because he's not going to be having to terrorize my quarterback at georgia state that'll be fun um you know i i also love the jalen robinson the Ole miss uh man this is a great move for him this is a guy when you watched him at ucf you know flashed off on the screen on a regular basis and you think you can, and you think about all the ways in which you know Kiffin can use him in the backfield, in the slot, maybe even outside through bubble screens. I mean, there's just so many ways that a guy like Jalen Robinson's skill set will be able to be used and utilized. Excuse me, at a, at Ole Miss. So I really love that for him, um, and I think that he's going to be somebody who immediately has to be on a lot of CFF boards because he's going to get a lot of touches. I like at the very least, he's going to get touches. Now, what he does with those. It's up to him, but whether, like I said, whether in the backfield, whether in motion, he's going to be all over the field. Um, love Matt Landers to Arkansas. You know, I'm not saying he's going to be the next Traylon Burks, uh, but from a size profile, that's how they're going to re- want to use him. Uh, he's, he's a big guy. And I think, you know, and one of the major criticisms that was levied against him at Georgia was he didn't grow up enough. 
he it was always you know Matt Landers is a super talented kid just hasn't taken the necessary steps to grow up um yet and that was kind of his always his, his quote-unquote downfall at Georgia and I think he took that year in Toledo you know like Nick said you know coming back from injury and having a pretty productive year shows that he has the ability to you know play through adversity and I think now you know with Sam Pittman there who obviously recruited him is going to at the very least have an opportunity to get touches once again at you know at Arkansas and you know for for his size profile being a guy who's six five you know Arkansas love tall receivers he's gonna get those 50 50 balls that Traylon Burks got once again he's gonna have an opportunity to make plays whether or not he makes those is, is wholeheartedly up to him but you know Arkansas loves big receivers and he fits uh fits that uh, uh entirely Grant, now, go the, oh go ahead no go ahead please oh no I was gonna say uh Grant Gannell going to North Texas very intriguing uh you know i don't you know i, I think that this is a, a possible you know whether he starts or not it is definitely a possibility that you know this is him obviously trying to rehab his career um you know yeah you couldn't really do much at arizona over the last two years i don't blame him for transferring in the slightest um you know he, he's been in a pretty rough situation as of as of you know in this episode so i think you know, heading to North Texas is great for him as he'll have more than an opportunity to get the starting job for one. But I also think that he is a guy, you know, give, that showed immense talent at one point. But Arizona really kind of just took that away, uh, to, to, to say the least. Uh, I, I think I think Arizona's <laughs> situation really hurt that. Um, and then Gary Bohannon going to USF. I think that's perfect for him. I think that this is an opportunity where he's going to go down there and, and allow and be more allowed uh, to be an athlete, which I think Gary Bohannon's skill level, that's where he looks the best when he's able to roll out of the pocket. I think this level, he's going to put up ridiculous numbers. I genuinely do think so. I think, you know, a little, little, little less structure uh, on what they're going to want him to do behind the pocket. They're really just going to say, Hey man, like you're an athlete, you, you know, you're six, three, you're built like a running back you know, take us home every day, every night. And, and I think that he's going to be allowed to do that from not just a throwing perspective, but what he does on the ground. I think he could put, I think he could genuinely be like a 27, 2800 yard guy through the air, maybe even 3000 and then give you almost a thousand yards on the ground. And that's going to be what you see at USF is hoping for him uh, this year because he has the ability to do so, you know, and, you know, I, I think, you know, he, as long as he progresses as that passer, uh, last year throwing for 2200 yards. So I don't think saying, you know, 2800 is out of the realm of possibility his ability to run will always be there. Um, and I think at, at times at, at Baylor, he only used it when necessary. USF is going to be like, hey, dude, run. Like, get the hell out of the pocket. Three three seconds and leave uh, as, as soon as you need to. And so I think that's going to just bolster what he does. And at the very least, have one heck of a college highlight reel. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm excited on North him. Texas. Sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. Gunnell is the third, assuming everybody is – still yeah. there and signed is the third incoming transfer that North Texas has taken at quarterback this year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they brought in uh, a transfer from Louisiana tech and a transfer from Abilene Christian, all of which were expected to get an to opportunity start. to start. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And creating competition. Back, well, and they bring back their starting quarterback in Austin yeah, Ani, and then they have a transfer still there from last year in but, Jace. Yeah. So they have, they have like six uh, quarterbacks that you know are are in competition to to for the starting job, or you know five at least. Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, they've got some talent. 
at the receiver position, they've, they've got guys who are coming back from injury, guys who are coming in, you know, other incoming transfers from, from Power 5 level, Latrell Neville transfer from Nebraska uh, this week. So they're, they're interesting, but, man, that's a, that's a bit of a messy quarterback situation. situation. You know, bring in three guys <laughs> when you have your, you know, starter coming back. And I know Ani wasn't great last year, and, and at certain points it looked like he was going to lose his – grip on that job but this is turning whew, over every rock every stone every absolutely board, you know uh, we're gonna find a starter that that's that's what it feels like in, at uh north texas I, I was gonna say just for cff uh bohannon going to usf makes me happy for him and for shapen uh at baylor because you know we had kind of we talked about baylor and the quarterback uh situation there a little bit and you know, uh, Nick, you had said, well, let's not rule out Bohannon sticking at Baylor. And, you know, because that's what Shapin had done the year before. So um, uh, I, I was I was a little worried about that. But seeing him go to USF uh, made me happy for who also uh, has his... a returning starter and Timmy McClain, who was a you know mm-hmm. starter, started nine games as a freshman last year. So how many games uh, they won last year? They won two. They won two games. Nice. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. I think Bohannon might have that job wrapped up already. They're so coming back hot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have so. them slashed. I, I haven't just handed it to Bohannon yet. Uh, partly, I don't want to just super inflate USF. I want to kind of keep there. We talked yeah. about it last week. I like, you know, especially at the quarterback position, do sometimes uh, make make certain, uh, you know, there's a reason why I, I do certain things there. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I hope it, hope it works out. And you're you're right. He is. I think. I think the odds-on favorite to beat out McLean. But McLean, you know, he had some he had some moments last year. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All in right. Those well, two wins. You know. In those two wins, he had some moments for sure. So that's uh, not all on the quarterback. But as the quarterback goes, the team usually goes. And if you're not good, that's usually the first spot they're looking to replace. But uh, let's talk about uh, you know the last show that we did. We did the offensive position groups that could potentially keep a team uh, from the college football playoff, a conference title game, or bowl eligibility. Um, this week, we're going to do it on the defensive side. Uh, so, And you have a couple of uh, potential lists here, Baylor defensive backs, Georgia, the defensive line with everyone on the line going to the NFL pretty much, uh, Louisville, Michigan lost a lot on their front seven uh, going to the NFL. Ohio State uh, has uh, some weak linebackers. Ole Miss with a defensive line. So uh, let's just kick it off here, Nick. What did you notice when you were putting together all of these, returning production, putting the depth charts together? What group defensively did you look at and say, this could be the chink in the armor. This could be the weak link for this team to potentially, like you said, any of those three things become a, a bowl eligibility, win a conference, or even make the playoff. Well, I starting at the top and, and defending national champion Georgia. And it's not like defensive line is this major weak link, right? I mean, we, we talked uh, last it's show. Guys about, are going to get drafted. Yeah, exactly. And the there's some thoughts so. that, you know, maybe even the best defensive lineman from last year's team is still there, right? <laughs> I mean, and yeah. Uh, uh, Jalen Carter, I mean, is is just an absolute stud and, and could end up being just as good, if not better, uh, than anybody who was drafted last year. But, you know, 
as far as returning starters, which we've moved away a little bit from talking about that, um, sort of as a college football, uh, you know, public, I guess. Um, but they're losing a lot of production on the defensive side of the ball. And a lot of it uh, is from the defensive line. I mean, certainly linebacker took a big hit uh, as well, but the defensive line with Devontae Wyatt, Trayvon Walker, Jordan Davis, all those guys leaving, um, getting drafted, that it makes sense that Georgia fell uh, farthest in terms of talent on the defensive line. They're now 27th in our D-line position strength ratings. That's eight in the SEC. So you think a fringe top 25 unit, at least to start, and it's probably a little better than that, you know, pure talent uh, wise. I mean, the defensive line ranks sixth and average 247 rating, sixth and average rivals rating. But the experience piece is why that, you know, they're they're down a little bit. Um, will that be what stops Georgia from being able to, uh, you know, defend its national championship? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know, but the way our numbers would indicate that's at least the weakest unit on paper right now. And a big part of that is just experience. And, and, you know, the other units aren't quite that elite level they were last year either at linebacker, they're 11th at uh, the secondary, they're 15th, um, which is, you know, they were top three across the board uh, at this time last year. So, you know, it makes sense that last year's defense was was so good. Um, and there's just there's just a little bit of a fall off. And, and a big part of that is experience. Michigan, another semifinalist, um, very similar. And for Michigan, it's it's both units in the front seven. Of course, they had multiple uh, first round caliber uh, defensive linemen that they've lost. They also lost some talent at linebacker as well. There's a bigger drop off for Michigan just because that you know pure talent uh, as far as the high level of, of recruiting, you know, it's not quite what Georgia's done, uh, certainly. So Michigan's fallen off similarly experienced, but doesn't quite have at least, you know, the way the, the experts um, calculate it. Not There's there's a bigger drop-off in, in terms of pure talent. So Michigan now has the 52nd-ranked defensive line and the 66th-ranked linebacker group. Those are both middle of the pack in the Big Ten so, you know, is that what, what's going to stand in the way of Michigan uh, defending its Big Ten title? Uh, it, it at least looks like it the way we calculate things. I was a little surprised. I thought Ohio State's biggest question mark was going to be on the defensive backfield, was going to be in the secondary. But their linebackers actually grayed out, or, or at least, you know, our ratings uh, significantly lower. Ohio State has a top 10 secondary, according to our talent metrics the number one rated secondary uh, in our position strength ratings in the Big Ten. Linebackers, you know, similar to Georgia, it's not it's not like it's a bad group, but, you know, 43rd, it's, it's a fairly mediocre uh, linebacker group, and they've had some turnover there. They've had, you know, they're, they're probably going to play a couple of former running backs, <laughs> you know, at linebacker. Right now it looks like they've returned both – starters but everything i've read uh indicates that actually the the favorites to be the first two linebackers on the field 
in 2022 are guys who weren't quote unquote starters last year. So there's just a little bit more uncertainty maybe at that position. Um, and that's, you know, I think linebacker, I'm not too worried because again, it's only two players. They've got experience. there. probably going to be fine. And like I mentioned with Georgia, I mean, the, the raw talent is there. They rank third in average two, four, seven rating at linebacker. So somebody probably is going to emerge. It probably won't be the thing that stops Ohio State from winning a national championship. Uh, but if there's a weak spot on paper, you know that could be it. And then the other uh, team that that may or may not uh, be worthy of that playoff discussion that jumps out to me is Texas A&M, and and they're kind of they have some similar numbers to Michigan in the front seven. They rank 41st on the defensive line, 49th. At linebacker, that ranks tenth. Leal and Clemens both drafted. Yeah, yeah. In in the SEC, respectively, tenth and twelfth at those positions. So they've recruited incredibly, incredibly well. But they, you know, are are they going to be able to rely on some unproven players, uh, guys who've you know played? Uh, they've got seven career games started on the defensive line on the entire roster. Um, there are only two players who, who uh, appeared in 170 or more snaps or, you know, played 170 or more snaps last year on the defensive line. That's, there's just an experience, you know, question. They re- they recruited ridiculously well on the defensive line, but how many true freshmen are ready to play day one on the defensive line? There might be one or two, but they're probably, you know, they've got several guys who've been, uh, either actual five-star players or fringe five-star players who didn't play a lot their first year in, in college station. They certain, you know, maybe they didn't need them, and this year maybe they do, so they'll be able to, to roll guys in a little earlier. But, you know, not everybody's ready to play, even as a uh, five-star ready to start on day one. So that's yeah. just a little bit of a question mark. Linebacker, similar to Ohio State, they only have two, you know, starting linebackers, and there's just a little bit of turnover there. So you're going to get a little bit of a hit. I pay less attention at linebacker, but I think that defensive line for Texas A&M, you know, it's it's a little bit of a concern because they are going to have to rely on uh, true freshmen, probably, you know, to to for Texas A&M, and they're fifth in our current power ratings. So that's you know, SEC championship contender, uh, playoff contender. Um, but they they're going to have to rely on, albeit very very talented players, but a lot of inexperience, especially up front. Um, at least at this elite group, that that's a little bit of a concern for me. So I do think you know if, if Texas A and M falls short of expectations, there's a chance that the inexperience in the front seven is going to be a big reason why. Xavier, uh, is there any specific units that? You look at on defense and go, man, this is going to hinder this team. I mean, is it Georgia and Michigan the biggest ones because they're losing so much to the NFL, or those are big time schools? They're replacing mm-hmm. those guys with you know four or five star players, awesome recruiting class. Of course, they always have them, but you know uh, it, it's tough to lose a Jabo and Hutchinson. Right. Jordan Davis and Devontae Wyatt and uh, you know just everyone. Uh, on these defenses i think from you know a protection standpoint 
you know, when you, when you, I feel like last year showed us that you can have a rather, I won't say suspect secondary, but maybe an unproven one and still win a national title. But what you can't have is a, you know, a, a young or maybe an unproven front five or front seven and, and win a national title. You know, Georgia's strength last year was this front seven. You know, I would, I would have any, I would bet any fan a thousand dollars if they really thought that Georgia secondary was the strength of their defense. Um, and so I feel like for a team like Baylor, who, who's, who's position groups, you know, where, where DB is a problem or isn't, you know, is lowest on their returning production may not be an issue. Your DB group can kind of grow as the season grows. They can get better with confidence. And ultimately, if you have a strong enough front seven, they'll be protected the entire year until they're not. You know, we saw Georgia's secondary was really not even a question until the SEC championship game where they got torched. Then all of a sudden it was like, well, maybe the secondary is not good enough to win a national championship, right? You know, so I feel like from from a Michigan standpoint, that's got to be pretty worrisome that your front seven is your, you know, is going to have to grow with the season. It's going to have to learn and and take their lumps. You know, same thing goes for A&M that I'm, I'd be concerned about. Uh, because at the end of the day, like Nick said, you're leaning on freshmen, sophomores in, in a league or in, especially in a conference that is going to give you to make you see everything from week to week. Right. You're going to go from playing in Alabama one week who, who may run a certain style to running Ole Miss who run the complete opposite style the next week. And that really hinders you, especially for a front seven last year that I think for a lot of A&M fans would say underperformed uh, last year, even with all the talent that is left. Uh, to some extent, um, you know, we even saw it in the draft. Like, like you said, Marvin Leal, he dropped because you know everybody, you know, a guy that pretty much thought people thought were a first round draft pick coming into the year underperformed. So, yes, A and M. Yes, I, I think Georgia's defensive line is going to be a group that maybe doesn't strike you as as menacing as last year's. I mean, obviously they're returning Jalen Carter, who may be the best defensive lineman in football, not named Will Anderson. Uh, but you know, I, I really think that you know you can work around that full steam. I feel like, you know, for Georgia, they do have immense amount of talent for a Michigan to lose as much talent as they did on the front seven is going to be huge. It just is, you know, and and Michigan has been a team that's had, had, has had, you know, underrated secondaries for a minute, but has not had the guys up front to get to the quarterbacks, you know? And and so, you know, the, the first things that come to mind, like a Jabril Peppers who, I mean, they literally had to play everywhere because they couldn't find a way to get pressure on quarterback. So he was playing safety. Then he rolled down and was playing linebacker. I mean, he was essentially a star by the time he finished his career at at Michigan because of how many different ways they had to extend their defense to get pressure. From Georgia's perspective, though, they won't be able to do what they did last year, you know, and just send four. That was one of the strengths of Georgia's defense last year is you they could send four, drop seven, and genuinely still get to the quarterback and disrupt everything you had going, uh, you know, behind the line of scrimmage. And that is something that I think from, from Kirby, and we'll see it coming this year, if he still trusts his defensive line to do that, if he still trusts Jalen Carter and company to get pressure solely with four and be able to drop that secondary and that linebacking court uh, and behind to force you to be, you know, the greatest quarterback since sliced bread, which Bryce Young may have been if he had all of his weapons at one time to be able to make those kind of throws and make those kind of plays against his secondary, you know, 30, 40, 50 yards downfield. Yeah. Uh, the, it's, it's a lot of stuff. I keep thinking of, uh, you know, man, it, te- Texas tackling, you know, I, I know we don't have it broken down by traits, but the tackling, the t- <laughs> cause the talent is there. Those guys are usually in position to make the play. Uh, but, but the tackling, the, the mm-hmm. like, it's, it's not one unit. It's just the just tackling. The tackling. Mm-hmm. Just the tackling well, so has this, to get better. This is kind of an interesting way to look at it. And obviously, you know, we we build a big 
percentage of our overall team strength ratings are built using the player ratings that build into the position strength ratings, you know, and, and, and yeah. so this is important, but it is just one piece of the puzzle because there are some other teams that rank, you know, uh, Utah, right. Is, is our highest rated PAC 12 team. We, we, we currently would have them uh, favored over every other PAC 12 team on our neutral field, but Utah ranks 71st in our defensive line strength ratings utah pretty much always uh or or has i think earned the benefit of the doubt on the defensive line even though you know they're not going to be super highly rated even if they're a little bit inexperienced they lost you know some some uh big time production guys up front last year Uh, on paper on our spreadsheet that defensive line looks maybe like a weak spot but utah in particular probably is going to do an okay job, you know, filling those holes. Wisconsin jumps out. I have Wisconsin highlighted on this list because the best unit of of the three defensive units is the secondary, which ranks 52nd nationally. Their highest rated unit in the Big uh, Big Ten is the linebacker core, which ranks sixth in the Big Ten, but 56th nationally. Wisconsin has consistently put up you know, incredible defenses. And even though they are going to have to replace some uh, big-time players, I mean, this was the number two defense in in overall, uh, excuse me, defensive team production last year, team performance. They were top five, or excuse me, uh, top 10 in 2020. You know, consistently this unit is is very, very good. They just don't recruit at a an elite level. So I'm, I'm pulled a little bit in, in two different directions because I think these numbers definitely have some value. They're a big piece of what we do, but there are some teams that, you know, they certainly aren't everything. And will Wisconsin be able to, you know, not see a huge drop off? I mean, they might not be number two in defensive team performance next year, but I think there's certainly a chance that they could be a top 10, top you know, 15 defense. And I expect Wisconsin, again, assuming the Big Ten West is a thing uh, and the Big Ten West champ gets to the, the conference championship game, might change by the time you listen to this. Uh, but, you know, I would certainly expect Wisconsin to be very much in the mix to win the West and, and maybe have a shot at, assuming it's Ohio State, in that conference championship game. And, and the defense will be a big piece of that. So it's it's interesting to me, you know, to, to – look at some teams at the highest levels, a team like Georgia, a team like Texas A&M, because I think that especially, you know, at, at that top 10 level, uh, usually the, the recruiting numbers and the way we calculate things, they're, they're pretty strong at that level. There are some teams like Utah and Wisconsin where, you know, they don't have those elite recruiting numbers, but they, consistently seem to perform at a high level. And then there are some other teams that, you know, might recruit quite well or might have uh, some really experienced units or did last year. I'm thinking an Ole Miss, they rank really high in a lot of different categories, just in, for, in terms of raw talent, either because they've recruited well or, or you know, bring in some transfers. Uh, Oklahoma State, runners up in the Big 12 last year, they saw a huge drop off specifically at the linebacker position, but at multiple position groups, just because last year's group was so experienced, 
this year's less so, you know, is that are we going to see a major drop off? Because right now Oklahoma State ranks 119th in our linebacker position strength. Kind of like, you know, I, I said that a little bit earlier about James Madison. They're probably not the worst uh, linebacker group in the country. I'm guessing Oklahoma State's not the worst linebacker group in the Big 12, not a you know bottom 12, bottom 13 uh, unit in the country, but just sort of, you know, the way that we calculate things, that's what it looks like right now on paper. But that still could be a, a position group that stands in the way of Oklahoma State, you know, competing for a Big 12 title. That might be the position – uh, that that has the biggest impact, maybe. You know, th- at least our numbers indicate that, that that could be. And then lastly, you know, I look at a team that probably we would expect to be, um, you know, go to a bowl and, and certainly could. I think I've said before, the way Louisville's schedule sets up and, you know, they have a, a quarterback that can kind of take over a game Louisville could absolutely ruin somebody's season. However, when I'm looking through and and they had a lot of room for improvement on the defensive side of the ball, their secondary, they've done a really good job of rebuilding that secondary through the transfer portal. It right now looks like a top 20 unit nationally, according to our numbers. The linebacker core, you know, they're they're experienced. They're getting some guys back from injury. It's a top 40 unit. Not great, but decent. On the defensive line, it's similarly experienced, but they're relying on a couple of former walk-ons. They've also had, you know, a little bit of turnover. Their defensive line ranks 108th in our position strength ratings, 13th in the ACC. And, you know, Louisville's had trouble at times stopping the run, rushing the passer. So if we're thinking that Louisville's a team that, uh, you know, could take that next step and, and not just have the potential to ruin somebody's season, but maybe make a move in the ACC, you know, I'm a little worried if I'm looking at that defensive line right now looks like one of the worst on paper in the ACC and, and you know, bottom 25 in the country. That's a little bit of a problem. Um, so, I, you know, it's interesting to me, one, if you see just one unit that is is a complete outlier compared to the yeah, rest. Yeah. Um, but then also. You know, some teams that are kind of on the on the fringe, you know, will they be bowl eligible? Will they have a chance to compete for a title? Um, and what could be the one unit that kind of makes or breaks it? Uh, I think we you know, we're able to, to pull out at least a few examples. All right. That is going to wrap it up for this week. Remember, you can find us all on the Twitter machine at Bogman Sports for myself at CFB Winning Edge for Nick at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. For the new college graduate, Xavier Trish, congrats again. And we will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge.